opportunities in light of a troubled world. You see, it's just easier to say to ourselves, I have nothing to offer. I have no gifts. Therefore, I have no responsibility. Or, or because I'm so busy or because I'm so uneducated or because uh, of this, this, and that, I, I just can't do the things that a lot of you all can do. And so I'm off the hook. But none of us are off the hook. And so we, we've been, we started with love the Lord with all your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's easy, right? But yet the whole premise is, but can you back it up? Saying you love somebody is one thing, but backing it up with your entire life, that is another thing. And, and sacrificially being involved in another person's life or our deity's life, that's something completely different as well. And so this underlying current, this, this phrase, can you back it up, has been very important as we study the love of God. And then we got into the fact, do you trust the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because that's the same premise. That's the same undercurrent. Do you trust him? And can you back it up? Does your lifestyle illustrate that you truly trust the Lord with all that you are and all that you have and all that you ever will have? Do you really trust him? We also talked about fearing the Lord, respecting the Lord. I even forgot what we talked about last week. I have no idea. Does anybody remember? Was last week fear of the Lord? I don't remember. Anyway, hopefully they're all very relevant to you. <laughs> the one for today is uh, problematic. But you see, the others have set the foundation for this one. Bless you. I believe that this one's probably the most important of all of them. And if you miss any of the others, if you're deficient in any of the others, you will be deficient in this one. Today we're going to discuss return to the Lord. I want to illustrate again that all of these are commandments of God. These are not optional. These are mandates that God has thrown out for all of his children for our betterment, for our enjoyment, for our peace, for our longevity, he throws out these commandments. And by the way, by the way, return to the Lord. Now, to, to just wrestle with that concept a little bit, that little phrase, there's an implication that may be lost in the translation. To return to the Lord implies something very important. It implies that once upon a time, we were with the Lord, but then life happened. Something happened. Something that caused us to drift or to run or to just fall asleep and, and bypass that relationship with the Lord. And, and in that deficiency, something has happened that has set us on an alternate path that has led us further and further and further away from God. And to all of those people, the message is very clear, return to the Lord. This is not optional. This is not saying if you want to. This is an invitation. It's a commandment. It's all of these things. It's come back to me now because I can't do anything for you as long as you're still headed that direction. So if you want me to have any involvement and any influence in your life, you have to come back to this side. You have to come back to my direction because right now 
I'm a fear, in, in fear of losing you forever. And so this commandment is so pertinent. I, I looked this up in the scriptures, of course, like I've been doing each week, and I want to share some verses with you. I'm not going to share a whole lot of them. Uh, there's, I think there was 16 or 17 that used this phrase. But in Exodus chapter 5, 22, and I want to share some of the premises behind these verses. God said uh, to Moses, um, or actually it says, Moses returned to the Lord. He did this on a regular basis. That's one uh, kingdom principle. Moses returned to the Lord frequently. On this particular return, he said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people, Israel? Is this why you sent me to them? Why did you bring this trouble on these people? Isn't it interesting that when people drift away from God or when they run from God, that God is at fault? That just seems crazy to me. Lord, why have you brought this trouble on people? Now, now there's another kingdom principle here that we don't want to forget. When you choose to go an alternate path, when you choose to go in opposite direction of our loving Heavenly Father, then you're setting yourself up for failure. You understand that, right? You're setting yourself up for problems and troubles in your life. When you choose to not do things God's way, you can pretty much assume, I'm going to get slapped in the face at some point. That shouldn't be a no-brainer, right? We all know that because we've all been there. In this particular case, Israel has gotten themselves into trouble because they continually turn their backs on God. And so he says, Lord, why did you bring this trouble on them? In other words, why did you bring this discipline on them? Key phrase, discipline. The scriptures make it very clear to me that God disciplines those he loves. If he doesn't discipline you, then guess where you stand in that relationship? But because he loves you, he disciplines you because he's trying to get you from where you have been to where he wants you to be so he can do the best work through you for the sake of this troubled world. In in Exodus 6-7, he did give an answer to Moses. He said, I do this so that you will know that I am God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You see, what, what God is saying to Moses is this. God can deliver anybody at any given time. It'll be just, you know, piece of cake. But what is God really trying to accomplish in, in his relationship with us? He's trying to increase our faith to the point that we can move mountains from our knees in prayer. He's trying to create us to be prayer giants. He's trying to create us to be uh, military uh, combat fighters who can spiritually go into the world and, and push back the gates of hell. That's what he's trying to accomplish in us. And so sometimes he allows these giants to appear in our life so that when he comes victorious, when he overcomes this enemy, all of us will be able to say, what an amazing God we have. Did you see what he just did? That's what he wants. He wants to increase our faith, our praise, our adoration, our respect. He wants to impress us with his ability. And he can't do that if he doesn't allow giants to stick their ugly faces up in your lives. If you have no victories in your life, 
then you will take God for granted. He wants you to work for it. In Deuteronomy 4.30, I won't talk as much about each one. In Deuteronomy, unless the Spirit moves me, but that's beside the point. In Deuteronomy 4.30, it says that when you are in distress and all of these things have happened to you, then in later days, you will return to the Lord and you will obey him. So in throughout Deuteronomy 4, he's saying, if you don't do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. If you choose to reject me, this will happen. When you are in distress because all of these things have happened, just know that you will return to me. You will return to me and then you will obey me. But it's all contingent upon how stubborn you want to be. How arrogant you already are. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, and he says, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, according to everything I command you today, the phrase I want you to focus on is when. When you and your children return to the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, it's going to happen. That's why it's important what Proverbs says. If you train a child in the way they should go, that when they are mature, they will not depart from it. Maturity is not the only, uh, the only litmus test. It's also about the troubles that that person has had to endure through their life to get them to the point of saying, you know what, I think I want to return to the basis of my foundation. Page two. In 1 Samuel 7, 3, Samuel said to all of the Israelites, remember he was like the prophetic pastoral presence. He said, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the focus of this particular passage is this. If you are going to return to the Lord, you are going to do so with changes in your program. You cannot return to the Lord and then continue to do the things you've always done with the same people you've always been with and expecting the same results that you've always gotten. If you want to change, if you want to get in the Lord's good graces, you will come to the Lord and you will make some sacrifices. You will make some major uh, decisions in your life that may cost you some friendships. It may cost you some some uh, uh, entertainment value that you place on certain things. So, in other words, the Lord will He welcomes you back. He wants you to come back, but there are strings attached. He says, I will take you, I will clean you up, I will restore you, but you must live your life for my glory. I'm not going to bless it for your glory, in other words. And so that's really where we get the phrase, or where the phrase fits in, can you back it up? The Lord says to all of us, return to me. But can you back it up? When you come back to the Lord, can you do so with humility in your heart? Or do you still want to do it with arrogance? Do you still want to do it with, with your, with your self-respect and say, you know what? I'm not going to do this God's way. I'm going to do it my way. And so the question is, can you back it up? 
Can you do this with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 2 Chronicles 36, at the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you. You return to the Lord so that he can return to you. He's not going to go after you when you're headed down the wrong path and you have no regard for him, no no desire for him, no love for him or respect for him. He's going to wait for you to fall flat on your face and then he will come and pick you up. But only when you cry out to him for help and repent of your sin and confess your brokenness. Then he will respond, but he's not going to go after you as long as you're acting crazy and arrogant and foolish and spitting in his face. He's got too many other people to save in this world. In 2 Chronicles 39, if you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. If you will return to him. Page 3. Lamentations 340. Let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Key phrase, examine your ways. How did you get messed up in the first place? How did you get down the wrong path in the first place? Once you figure that out, return to the Lord. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He will injure us, but he will also bind up our wounds. He has to let you fall on your face. He has to let you get torn to pieces. He has to let you get get bloodied uh, because that's what usually is required of arrogant people before we're going to come back to him and repent and confess. So he will let you suffer. He will let you do it. In Hosea 7.10, it says that Israel's ignorance, I'm sorry, that's a Freudian slip. Israel's arrogance Ignorance, arrogance, you see where I'm going. Testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord because of that arrogance. The arrogance testifies against you and me. And, and if we have that arrogance in our heart and in our spirit, then I promise you, you probably will not return to the Lord. This is a huge verse for all of us. Because we are all an arrogant people. We are all self-sufficient. We are all very prideful people. We don't want people to see our woundedness, our brokenness, and we certainly don't want them to see our dirty laundry. And because of that arrogance, most of us will never return to the Lord. We refuse. Because there's no humility left within us. Hosea 14, 2 says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all your sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And then the last verse I want to share with you before we get into our main passage is Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Some of you may have this memorized. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Page four. Huge passage. Don't 
tear your garments. Don't offer more sacrifices. Rip your heart apart. Circumcise your heart. Come with a bleeding heart, with humility and brokenness in your spirit. And God will meet you on your path back to him. He will return to you as you return to him. And it will be a blessed relationship. But now let me tell you a quick story. Some of this you've heard. But I just want to put this in context. This is extremely humiliating for me, but I say this not because of me, but because God tells me this is his story, not mine. But you know, a lot of you know that when I went through my ordeal several years ago, and I made this huge blundering mistake in my spiritual and physical and human life, um, I was in a position where I'm similar to you all. What do I do now? I have completely embarrassed myself. I have completely destroyed myself professionally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. What am I going to do now? And God started the process of teaching me, you need to return to me. And, and, and I remember saying, God, I would love to return to you, but the discipline is too harsh. What was the discipline? He wanted me to stand before my church and, and humbly admit my sins before them. He wanted me to voluntarily step down from my position as pastor of that church. And he wanted me to separate myself from ministry altogether so that I could go through a period of healing and restoration. And I had the audacity to say, okay, God, I'll do it, but you, you know, six months. God says, it's going to take a lot longer than that, I can tell. And, and so, you know, the denomination at that time, they said, we want you to take two years. And I said, that's too much. That's ridiculous. Remember, I did this voluntarily. And they said, yes, and you also sinned voluntarily. And so for those two years, I was angry at everybody, angry at uh, everyone who ever tempted me, every, angry at everybody who turned their back on me, angry at the church, the denomination, angry at God for allowing it to happen. I was angry, absolutely angry at everybody. But God wanted me to show obedience to him. And it hurt so bad. And it was so humiliating to just tell people what I had done and, and to apologize and repent of that in their presence. It was so painful to do that, but God was teaching me something. And in, in, in the middle of the night, God told me, now, do you really want to know why I allowed that stuff to happen? Because I want you to put that on display for this church because now it's time that it happens in their lives. And uh, I said, God, I really don't want to relive this again. He says, I thought you wanted to practice obedience. I said, good call. It ended up taking about five years before I felt, before God felt I was ready. I thought I was ready in a couple days. But when God felt that I was ready, he took me off of the bench and put me back in the game. Now, if you would, turn to the book of Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 
the scriptures make it very clear that we are not up against flesh and blood, but that this is a spiritual battle that each of us are in. And this battle has been tearing me up this week. This has been, this has been heavy-duty stuff because I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk about this stuff. I don't want to relive this type of stuff. But again, it's not for me. I also want to just to plant this seed, a filter, if you will, for you to, to listen to this and, and to receive this. One of the things God has enabled me to do as a pastor, and this took a lot of years and a lot of practice, is he's enabled me to have the ability to love people, even though I may disagree with them. He's given me the ability to love people even when they irritate me to death. He's given me the ability to love people that even hate me. And so, so understand that I love you regardless of any of this. When, when God told Ezekiel to say this to the, 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 the house of Israel, they, they wanted to kill him because of association, because of transference. He made them feel bad, and so they wanted to respond by making him feel bad permanently. All of the prophets had to go through that same thing, and they all hated their, their calling because of it. So hopefully you know that this is not just coming from me personally. This is coming from within the text. I didn't write the book. Okay? So the other thing that we need, the other filter we need to remember is Romans chapter 3. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. We're all sinful, we're all broken, we're all messed up, we're all arrogant, we all have problems. So we can't just say, okay, I'm talking about you and you, nobody else. This is for every one of us, me included. In 34, it says, The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This first part here is pertaining to those in leadership of the church. All right, God already corrected me. Not a church, this church. This message, he wants me to make it very clear, is for this church. Not just for today, but for every day that has preceded this day. This is what he wants me to share with you. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill, high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. So we need to come to grips with things here. This church has a history of hurting people. Now, I understand how hard this is to hear it. 
But just understand how hard it is to say it. I have heard the cries of the people. They have been treated brutally and harshly over the years. This is easy to do when you're in ministry of some sort. Because in ministry, we know what the book says. We know the standard of measurement by which we should measure. But it's very difficult for us to apply it to ourselves sometimes. It's a lot funner to apply it to the lives of others. You know, Jesus had a problem with Pharisees because they saw themselves as being better than everybody else. Because we have honored the scriptures. We have not faltered to the scriptures. And so because you're not like us, we are going to treat you brutally and harshly. But that was 2,000 years ago. The church does it differently today. Sometimes we do it this a self-righteous way. We'll say, we'll say things like, if you don't agree with me, then you're in error. You're wrong. We might even use harsh words like um, rep- retrobate or reprobate. I can't, yeah, reprobate, that's the word. We might use words like um, cultic or an apostate. There's other words we could use. But, but here's the thing. We, we believe that we're doing the right thing, and we believe that our standard of measurement is accurate, that it's completely true, but a lot of times it has holes in it. What it really boils down to is that we believe what we believe And we're going to mandate what we believe, not necessarily what the book says, but what we believe the book says. And so we say, if you're not in agreement with me on this issue, you're wrong. But you know what what the problem with it is that in the Christian church and the history of the restoration movement, we speak where the scriptures speak and we're silent where scriptures are silent. In other words, the whole book is our, is our foundation. We don't have uh, theological principles that we say you have to ascribe to to be a member of this church. We don't do that to people. We believe in the basic foundation of our Christian faith. We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, died, died on a cross, and raised from the dead three days later. And he will come back to get his church, the bride of Christ. We believe in things like that, but when there are small differences, we don't, beat your, we don't beat you up and we don't show you the door because you disagree with us. We don't do that in the Christian church. But sometimes we do these things anyway because we're, we're convinced that this is what needs to occur. And there's no wiggle room. And as a result, those people leave the church wounded, licking their wounds, And they go somewhere else if they go to church at all. Sometimes, you know, we'll go down for a fellowship dinner and and somebody is, is, uh, is making coffee, but that's my job. Don't do my job. I make the coffee in this place. And if you're in my way and you're making my coffee, I will kick you in the shins. And I will call you unpleasant names. You know, the church has a history of hurting people. You know, you, uh, this happened in a church in Peoria. A lady thought it was a really neat idea. The leaves or the flowers had started dying. It was like September. She thought, I'm going to go out and put flowers in the flower bed. She said, is this okay? And I said, do it. Go for it. But she put fake flowers in the ground. They were not permanent. They were just there for a few weeks, you know. And so she sprinkled them around. They didn't look bad. But you would think that she, you know, threatened somebody's grandbaby. Because they came out wanting blood on the platter. Now, luckily, she was mean enough that she stayed anyway. But I wouldn't have blamed her for leaving. 
Let me give you some more example here. In verse 7, well, let me skip that first. This is what God has to say in judgment to this. And understand that there is judgment coming for this. There is judgment coming. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as surely as I live, declares the Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for the flock but cared for themselves more than the flock, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. That's pretty harsh. Skip down to verse 17, for I want you to get another nuance of the level of this type of of mistreatment. As for you, my flock, this is what the Lord says. Now remember, this was the shepherds first. Now we're talking about the rest of the church. This is the rest of the people. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your, with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and what you drink and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is the sovereign, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Now, listen to this. this. I've seen this displayed so many times. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all of the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them. This is just a crazy thing. You know, every church I've ever been at has been a struggling church. And and I believe that God puts me in those churches because he wants to do a unique type of ministry through me. I am a wounded person. I am severely broken. And through that, that has become the ministry that God has called me to, to wounded and broken people. And, and so in all of these churches, what happens is that there's a group of people that will say, look, we're not going to change. So you do whatever you need to do to keep yourself busy, and we'll come on Sundays when we're not busy. And, and, and so for the rest of the time, don't bother us. Now, sometimes that phrase has been explicit, sometimes implicit, but that's usually the gist of it. And so in every church, what I have done is, and this is every church, I spend time with the teenagers, I spend time in the schools, I spend time getting new people to the church, because usually those those churches are struggling with members. I'm not going to say it. Churches are struggling with members who follow this format. Just I'll just say that. And so that will be what happens. New people will start coming to the church. Young people will start coming to the church. Baptisms will start occurring. And then this breaks out. The older sheep, the, 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 I don't want to say the bigger sheep, all right? That's what it says right here. They start headbutting the young ones. They start headbutting them. They start trampling on their food. They start mistreating them, abusing them. And, and they do it until those people get so discouraged they leave the church 
And then they'll say, oh, I wonder why they left. Why doesn't that family ever come back to church anymore? Walter, what do you think? Oh, I ain't got no idea, honey. Maybe it has something to do with that knife you stuck in their back, but I'm just guessing. It happens all the time. Because this is what's crazy about small churches. Is, is that when there's a, a pool of money, we become very protective of that money. That's why a lot of small churches don't have any. Because then there's nothing to fight over. But when there's a little pool of money, what happens is everybody wants to get their hand in it. And when, and when there's a pool of money and new people are coming in, we're like, uh-oh, new people. Hide the money. Hide the money, Martha. Because we don't trust these new people. What, pastor? You're going to let them become members? They don't understand how we do ministry here. They don't understand what we believe or what we think. And so let's be a little bit more careful in letting them join the church. Because you know, once they join the church, they can vote. And we don't want them voting against us, honey. We want them to vote in agreement. And they don't know us yet, so don't let them join the church until we have trained them. To be like us. And that's what Jesus said. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites, who search all over the world looking for a new convert. And when you find one, you do all that you can to make them into the same kind of substance that you are. Or substance, that's what I meant. You see, as a pastor... The hottest commodity in the world is a visitor. Somebody who's looking for Christ. Somebody who just found Christ. Somebody who doesn't know church politics. Who doesn't understand theology. People who are searching for answers. And they're hungry. And they're thirsty. And this is what I believe he's referring to here. You trample the clear water and make it muddy. The clear water is the water of life that that quenches the thirst so that you will never thirst again. But let's muddy it up so that you're confused. Let's trample all over the food which sustains your life. Well, trample it, and, and that way the word of life that feeds you. Jesus is the bread of life, but but let's muddy it up. Let's trample it so that you have a hard time getting what you need from these elements. Because here's what happens. If you go to a water source and it's all muddy and you can't drink it, what happens? You go to a different water source, right? If you're hungry and you want some good food and you come to a restaurant that serves a bunch of crud, you're going to go to a different restaurant, correct? Correct. And so that's what's going on here. They muddy the water, they trample the food so that the little sheep won't get fed and they won't get quenched and they'll just say, let's go somewhere else. And then we can have, we can have our monthly meetings and we can say, boy, I wish we had more people here. I wish people would just want to serve. I wish people would come here. But you know what? As long as we're mean to them, they're not going to come here. They're not going to stay and they're not going to serve. Do you understand that? It's not going to happen. I've seen it in the three years I've been here. It's not right. It is not right. We should repent and turn from our ways and quit acting like that. This is God's church, not mine, not yours. Let's start acting like Christ is the head of this church. And let's repent of our ways and return to him so that he will return to us. Because otherwise, I'm out of here. 
I'm not going to put up with it another day. We have got to start acting like Christians. We have to. We have to. The Holy Spirit is in me, and I want it to stay in me. I don't want it to depart from me. So let's start really letting it live through us for the sake of each other. I've heard this phrase in every church I've been at. Oh, we're a friendly church. Oh, well, good. You know what? So is the VFW. So is Walmart. They put a greeter at the door that wears a funny funny vest and says, hey, have a great day. We should not aspire to be a friendly church. We should aspire to be a loving church that will do anything it takes sacrificially to enhance the other's people's lives, to, to, to put them on the same level that we're on, to make them happy to be here, to make them want to serve. You do that by love, not by restrictions or by rules. This is what happens when you don't vent on a regular basis. You just explode. The Lord's been telling me to say this stuff for a long time. And I keep saying, Lord, I don't want to offend them. And he says, why? They will offend you. And I say, yeah, but I'm the pastor. I represent you. And he says, I don't have a problem offending them. I said, Lord, maybe you should do this. He says, I am doing it. That's why I sent you there. Be faithful. Be obedient. So understand, I'm not talking about this stuff as a person who's way up in the pulpit looking down his nose at all of you. I'm on the ground where scum lives because that's where I belong. And I'm looking up at you all and I'm saying you all have got to quit trampling on people like us. You've got to quit kicking us when we're down. We need you to love us. We need you to love on us. We need you to love through us. We need a church that is loving, regardless of the sins in my heart, regardless of my theology, regardless, regardless, regardless. I need you to love me. But the only way this is going to happen is if we return to the Lord. Because judgment is coming if we don't. Judgment is coming. Churches close all the time because of this same stuff that's written on these pages. It could happen to us, and it will happen to us if we don't turn from our ways. I have a lot, had a lot of anxiety about talking about this stuff today because this stuff doesn't make me comfortable. I don't want you to think I enjoy this. There's a little element of fear in me. Not because of what you can do to me, but what God can do to me if I'm disobedient. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid for the church that we won't return to him. And judgment will come. I'm afraid of that. But we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I have people that are ready to pray with you if you would like someone to pray with you. I think we all need prayer. But let's pray before we sing, okay? Gracious Father, we open our hearts to you and pray that you will prune us. 
Convict us of our sin. Convict us of our wrongdoing. Convict us of our attitude. Forgive us of our, the way we've treated people. We pray that you will be our God and that you'll return to us. That you will discipline as necessary. But we focus more on the restoration. We need Jesus in our life to change us and to give us a different look. We need you to breathe life into this church so that we can breathe life into this community because as long as we're bickering, we're no good to anybody. Holy Father, please come and show yourself to us. Heal us. For the sake of this dying world, please heal us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. you.